not going to lie, I'm ready to preach this morning. I tucked my shirt in because I was so excited <laughs> to preach this. My wife said I must be going through a midlife crisis if I'm tucking my shirt in. So next week, I'll bust the shorts out in a t-shirt or something. But glad you're here. Power on your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Eventually, we're going to get to that. This morning, we're kicking off a new teaching series called Rooted. We're going to spend 10 weeks talking about what it means to be rooted in Christ. It goes with our Wednesday night Rooted class, which we're launching for the first time. A ton of you have already signed up. Uh, If they're not already, there will be sign-up sheets coming around that you can sign up for the class this Wednesday. It is free. Childcare is free. The book is $15 that you can pick up at the Connect Center. Uh, If you can't afford that, Someone has donated at least 10 books that you could have for free, so just let us know that. But don't miss it. It starts this Wednesday night for 10 weeks. We talk about what it means to be rooted in Christ and experience God in your life. Now, since we moved into this facility last December, we've had over 100 people give their life to Christ, 54 of them in a four-week period. We baptized two girls this morning at the first service. We don't have any baptisms scheduled at this service. But if you so get moved, I will dunk you in your clothes this morning in that tank right over there. And we're going to talk about what baptism means this morning as we study Philippians chapter 3 together. But don't miss, sign up for the class here. Get your books out at the Connect Center. Starts this Wednesday night. Now, the way it worked out, Mother's Day, I would have had to preach on who Satan is. And so instead of doing that, uh, we're excited to have not just Darren Earlywine here, but uh, Julie Earlywine will be preaching that Sunday. Don't miss it. It's Mother's Day. It's going to be a lot of fun, and they're doing a special standalone message. That means that this week we're actually starting with week two in the Rooted Study of Who is God? So here's the story of the Bible. It begins with these Hebrew words, Barak Bereshit Hashemayim. It literally, which is a whole lot more fun if you say it like Arnold Schwarzenegger saying it. Barak Bereshit Hashemayim, right? Hashemayim. And it means that where the two waters come together, the sky and the water, they tried to make sense of it. They called that heaven, the other place of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and everything in it. And the pinnacle of his creation was humankind. He said it was very good. But since everything was perfect, Adam and Eve, they got to walk around in perfect harmony with the animals. They got to be naked every day. Clothes were not an obligatory thing. And then they rebelled against God. You know the story. Humanity rebelled against them with those first human beings, and then there's problems in their family. One of the brothers kills the other brother, and then, you know, the whole humankind just goes in complete disarray. There's a story of he makes a promise to Noah, and and then they rebuild society. And then he says, I'm going to make a covenant with Abraham. You remember Father Abraham, who had many sons? Many sons had Father Abraham. He had Isaac, who begat Jacob, who begat the 12 sons of Israel. Israel is another name that was given to Jacob. One of those sons is named Joseph. He has a fancy coat. He is thrown into a pit. He is taken out and and, uh, taken and sold into slavery in Egypt. If you're not familiar with the biblical story, it goes on that there's a great famine in the the land. And so Joseph had risen to power at the right hand of Pharaoh and his people, his family come and find food in Egypt. 
And there, over the course of 400 years, their family grows immensely, over to 100,000 people, only they become enslaved. And sometime around the 15th century BC, they are asking and praying that God would free them from slavery. The great exodus happens. Charlton Heston leads them across the Red Sea. And they're supposed to go into the promised land, but they didn't listen to him. And so Moses himself will never see the promised land, but they spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness. But God doesn't give up on his people. He gives them the land he promised. So they move into the land, even though they had no military force or power, had no reason to be able to uh, accomplish what they accomplish. When they get into that land, eventually, rather than relying on God, they say, hey, we don't like you running this anymore. We want our own king. We don't want you to be king. So he gives them what they want. They get Saul. Saul's not a very good king. So then they get King David, who is a man after God's own heart. And things seem to be going well until he commits adultery with Bathsheba, and they have a son named Solomon. And because of the sins of his father, David, Solomon's own family becomes super messed up. And eventually Solomon's own sons will rebel against him, and more violence will occur, and there will be a war in the land. And eventually the kingdom gets split into two in the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And the the northern kingdom, they don't want anything to do with God at some point, and they are invaded by the Assyrians in 721 B.C. The southern kingdom, they're still doing all right, and God's sending the prophets saying, I'm not giving up on you. Even though you rebel against me, I'm not going to give up. Listen to me. Follow me. And yet they still don't. And in 586 B.C., the Babylonians come in from the east By the time we get to the day of Jesus and the time of the New Testament, things in the Israelite history had not gone the way that they had envisioned. They had been ruled by the Babylonians and then the Persians and then the Romans. And so they find themselves in a predicament. They they want to follow God. They want their land back and they pray for the Messiah. And it says that in the New Testament, God sends his only son, Emmanuel, God with us, that as much as humanity rebelled and rebelled since the beginning of time against him, the God that created the universe and holds the multiverse together, that created every hair on your head, that knitted you together in your mother's womb, that God pursued him, gives his only son, lives 30 years and then three years of active ministry, and is rewarded by being crucified on a cross. That the Bible teaches the Lamb of God got up as the ultimate sacrifice. No longer would they sacrifice animals because there was a once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It says that he didn't just die on that cross, making it so that anybody, anybody in here could draw near to God no matter what our history is. But he also rose from the grave, overcoming death itself. That we believe as Christians that we can live eternally in heaven with God one day, but we can also experience him in our life now. It goes on to say in the book of Acts that Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father and the Holy Spirit is given to the early Christians that if you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you live with God in this lifetime. And the church spreads rapidly. And we believe one day Jesus will come back to set the world right as it should be and no longer will there be tears and death and mourning and crying and the brokenness. The rebellion will have stopped. But we don't see that very often this side of heaven, do we? And so as I thought about what we should preach on who God is, there are some great theological principles I wanted to teach, and I'm going to save some of that for a Wednesday night. I wanted to talk about the Trinity. I believe you can see the community of God all the way back in the Old Testament. 
But for our purposes, I've realized that throughout human history, people have known about God, but very few choose to live their life connected with him. So rather than just talking about who God is, I want to talk about how we actually connect with God. And I've titled this morning's message, How to Not Not Connect with God. I'll explain what that means in just a little bit. So you ready to study God's word together this morning, church? Yeah. Okay, here we go. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Here's the backstory. Now we're after the time of Jesus. He has given his life. He's risen from the grave. The early Christians have begun to spread. There was a guy named Saul who we talked about last week in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus who encounters the risen Jesus. Has his life changed. Goes to Arabia for three years and then 11 years up in Syria before he goes on his first missionary journey. He goes on three missionary journeys, and by 60 AD, he is now in a prison cell in Rome, and he's writing to the church in Philippi, a church that got started because there was this wealthy woman named Lydia. She took ink from mollusks, mollusks, say that 10 times fast, in the Mediterranean Sea, and she'd take the purple ink and turn it into purple dye to dye clothing. And so very wealthy people bought purple cloth because it was expensive to make. She made a lot of money off of it. Paul goes to Philippi, and this woman Lydia comes to the faith, and she opens up her entire home to start a church there. This church thrives. And other cities that Paul leads people to the Lord, they don't experience what they experience in Philippi. And so as Paul is in a prison cell in Rome, they are sending him care packages, essentially, to provide for his necessities while he is there. And so he writes them thanking him. But then by the time they get to chapter 3, they discuss some problems that have arisen that they have questions about. And it says this in verse 1. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Then get this. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. As we'll talk about, it's some of the people who are telling them if they find freedom in Christ that they still must be circumcised in order to have salvation. Verse 3, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. They listen, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. He had it together. And yet that's not where he finds his worth. Will you bow your heads and pray with me? God, as we went through the story of who you are, and what you've done for humanity. You created us, you pursued us, you redeemed us, you will return and set us right. You're our Savior and our Lord. But God, we pray this morning, each of us comes in here with a different belief system and background, and we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would connect us right where you are with the truth of your gospel and with the words we read in scripture. And so we pause for a second as a church and we can acknowledge the presence of your Holy Spirit here with us right now. God, you have been working on us before we even walked into this room. May you speak to us freshly this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's family said. Amen. Do we have any impressive people in the room? Like, 
Come on now, you can be honest. We're in Hamilton County. Some very accomplished people here in the room. I want to tell you that you may not know this, but I am a very impressive person. I am. I have things to prove it. I have this. It hangs on my wall in my office now. And it says not only do I come on stage and preach the gospel, I am licensed to do so. It's very impressive, isn't it? This document. Bet you wish you had one of those. I don't, I'm not just licensed. I also have an education. I am an impressive person. I went to the fine Institute of DePaul University. <laughs> there is one Wabash College grad in the room right now. Okay, two, maybe more. I want to tell you, you know, this costs some money. It's very, not everybody gets a college education. You should be impressed with me. Not only do I have that, I have a very expensive degree here. In fact, one of the most expensive seminaries in the world. I got a degree, a Master's of Divinity from Fuller Theological Seminary, baby. That's not a two-year master's degree. That is a three-year master's degree. I am very impressive. How impressive are you? Some of you, you've got like documents going up onto the ceilings of your offices because you are so impressive. Some of you, you drove here in very impressive things. Some of you live in impressive places. Some of your kids are much more impressive in sports than others. Some of us, we go to family reunions and we like to share about some of the impressive things that we do. And heaven forbid we ever show up to a high school class reunion and all of the awards and great things in our lives, suddenly we remember them all. We like to impress each other. This passage that we are going to look at essentially says, when I get to heaven, the whole of this is meaningless. It means nothing. Sure, it's helpful in this life to be educated. Sure, it's great to work hard and work as if you're working for the Lord and accomplish things. Look, I'm very ambitious like many of you. But at the heart of that, if we miss what it means to know Jesus and the freedom that comes with that, that we do not have to impress him with anything, because we do it, don't we? We don't just want to impress one another. Some of us feel like before we come to God, we must impress him. In Philippians chapter 3, as I talked about, the title of this morning's message is How to Not Not Connect with God. I realize that's a double negative to the English majors in the room. But the first point I'd like to make in Philippians chapter 3 is don't misunderstand a relationship with God. In verse 1, it said, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same thing to you as it is a safeguard for you. And here's what you got to be careful of. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Mutilators of the flesh here. He's using language that is reminiscent of 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 28. Now, you don't have to have the Old Testament memorized to get this. There is a story there about the prophet Elijah. And Elijah is the last prophet of God left at that time. And he's in a place where there are 400 prophets of the false god Baal. And so he challenges them, you pray to your God to bring down fire on this altar where there was a sacrifice waiting, and I'll pray to my God, and whoever shows up, we will know that they're the Lord. 
And so the 400 prophets of Baal, they dance around and they chant for hours and hours. And it says they cut themselves. Literally, they mutilate their flesh. And they do it to impress the God Baal so that if they impress him enough and we invoke the gods, then they'll show up. But nothing happens. And so Elijah, the last prophet, gets out, and you know his life is at risk. He doesn't dance. He doesn't cut. He doesn't do any of that. In fact, he takes water, and he dumps it on the altar over the meat, soaking it. And then it says they built a moat around it. The water comes up over it. And then he simply cries out to God in a prayer. And just like that, fire is sent from heaven and burns the altar up. It's a crazy God. And so it's a crazy story. So in this passage, Paul is saying that just as those who tell you you have to circumcise yourself if you were a Gentile person in order to have salvation, that is you mutilating to try and impress God. And certainly there was a time that that was a symbol of the covenant with God. The New Testament will talk about that symbol now as baptism, which we'll talk about a little bit more in a bit. But to tell people that they were misusing the Bible and telling people in order to have salvation, you have to be circumcised. Paul addresses that directly. You ever see somebody misuse something? Uh, I got this great picture of this woman at the Olympics. As she was trying to figure out how to take a picture with a digital camera. <laughs> Dude, she is about to have a rude awakening, isn't she? I love that picture. Because some of you in this room, you've done it before. That's the best part, right? or your parents or grandparents. Like, here's the, we know it, we see it on the camera, but then when people do it to us in the church with our, or with Bibles, like we, we just kind of accept or we get angry and we don't talk to people about it. Paul is addressing them directly. Look, you are missing what it means to have freedom in Christ. And this wasn't a new message to the church in Philippi. He had been saying the same message for over 12 years. We know this because Galatians was written around 48 or 49 AD, at least I believe, and it's written by Paul to the church in Galatia, one of the two earliest letters that Paul writes. And in Galatians 5, verse 1, it says this, it is for freedom, not credom, I don't know what credom is, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. It says that if you know Jesus, you don't know it so that now you can impress God. You know him because he gives you freedom. Now certainly there will be those Christians even back then that abuse that freedom, that profess one thing and then do whatever they want. And they've missed the point. We'll talk about that at the end of this morning. But Paul was very clear back in this passage, mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace, for through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. Yeah, I know that's a topic today when you're having kids, do you do that or not? Like, he's just saying, it's your own choice. You have freedom in that area. What he's referring to there, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Not saying that ceremonies that we participate in are bad or not honoring to God. It's saying that if you want salvation, it doesn't come through some ceremony or act. 
comes through just knowing God and surrendering your life to him. And yet in churches, in our faith today, for many of us, we feel like I have to impress God enough so that he will love me so I can go to heaven when I die. And while I think doing good works for God come naturally if you know him, that is completely missing the good news of Jesus Christ when we believe that we have to impress God so that he will love us back. We are so adamant about people experiencing the love and freedom of Jesus Christ. When you know him, it's like a weight is taken off your shoulders. We want people to experience that over and over. We announced last Sunday that August 14th, we will be moving to three services on Sunday mornings at 9, 10, 25, 11, 50. Begin praying now who in your sphere of influence needs to experience freedom in Christ. Because it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Number two, if you're taking notes, how to not, not connect with God is you are to realize that you are more than your accomplishments. Paul writes in verse four, though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. You are more than just your accomplishments of what you have done with your life. I've met people that I ask them, are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, my daddy was a deacon. Yep. My grandma was on the prayer team. My, my mama, she cooked food, so it was so good. Like, right, we go back to these things in our families as if in some way they had some relation to us actually knowing. That's great that your family loved the Lord. I love it. I hope you came from a home like that, but, but you're missing the point. That is not where your faith resides. It resides with you. It's not in your family's accomplishment and where you find your confidence, some of us spiritually find our confidence in our families. And that works well to our family name gets tarnished by someone in our family. Some of us, the confidence Paul talks about here, we find our confidence in our finances. Got a good portfolio. I think that's a good thing. I think wise stewardship is something that's very biblical. But that's not the place to put your confidence because when the market crashes or things don't go well at your job, that confidence can be broken. And it's why you see people in this lifetime become hurt and destitute and feel like they are alone, not just when it comes to finances. Some of us, we put our confidence in our kids, in our kids' sports careers until they don't work out like we thought they would. Some of us, we put our confidence in our boyfriend or girlfriend and that's great until they break up with us. And then our confidence in this life is lost. Some of us, we put our confidence in this stuff. All the thing, goals and career things we accomplish and the things we decorate our offices with that demonstrate to people we're a go-getter and accomplished. And that's great till we end our life when everything is over and no one's no longer impressed with that. Some of us, we find our confidence in our marriages our significant others until it doesn't work out the way we intended or something different happens that changes our relationship. There was a great couple that my wife and I were partially mentored by in Southern California named Bill and Julie Davis. A couple years after we went through premarital counseling with them, they moved to San Diego 
And while they were there, he had opened up his own practice working on, uh, he was a chiropractor and especially worked with severe injuries in sports. And so he worked with people who were rehabbing from really terrible injuries. He was out mountain biking one day with some friends and he literally fell off a cliff, built it, and snapped his own spine. And here was a guy that worked with patients just like him and he now knew that he was paralyzed and was no longer going to be able to do the things that he once did. That changes your view of your life, doesn't it? That changes your marriage just a little bit. And yet it's been so cool to see how God has bonded them together through a horrible experience. Why? Because their confidence was not in their physical abilities or even their job or career. You see, when life hits, you have to know where your confidence is. The third and final point I want to share with you as we look at these last verses is that if you want to really connect with God, you have to pursue Christ and consider all else scubulon. <laughs> what does that mean? Verse 7. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything else a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Paul knew what it was like to lose everything. He encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus. He loses all his friends, all his good standing in the Jewish community, and he loses everything. And now he's writing from a prison cell in Rome. If he found his confidence in his accomplishments or in his good name or anything other than Christ, he would have had the worst life he could have ever possibly imagined. And yet he considers them all loss. Why? Because the end of verse 8, I consider them garbage that I may find Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but which is through the faith in Christ the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. He says, I find my identity, my confidence only in the resurrection of Jesus, and I consider everything else garbage. Let's camp out on that for just a second. The word garbage there in the New Testament Greek is skubulon. Now, how many have heard that word before? Skubulon literally means garbage or refuse or dung. We all tracking? Like they had another, today in our crude parts of culture, we would have another four-letter word that would describe that same thing. And Paul's using kind of offensive language here. I wouldn't use that word, but... Scubulon happens. Are we all tracking? We're on the same, make sure we're... That's the offensive nature of this word. Why? Do you know what this is a reference to? In Jerusalem, there was this place called the Valley of Hinnom. It's, it's literally Gehenna, which is where we get the word hell from. But anyway, they're describing that place as like hell. And he's saying here the garbage that they would dump there in the Valley of Hinnom, the, the refuse, the dung, it was the most horrific place you could imagine. In fact, in the Old Testament, the, the Jewish people actually to worship the false god Melech would sacrifice their own children there. That was that. So when he says it's like scubulon, it's like garbage. It's like, like he is not saying it's just kind of bad. 
anything else in this life, all the accomplishments that he had listed in verses four through six, all the reasons you should think he's a special, impressive person, he considers it scubulon. He considers it garbage. I don't think most of us live and think or at least even talk like that, do we? And it's why with most of us, when things go in disarray in our life and we experience scubulon, we don't know what to do. And we don't know where to turn. And we get angry and we get sad and our lives fall apart. And just like throughout human history, when we need God the most is usually when we turn our backs on him and rebel against him. And yet he pursues us and pursues us and pursues us and pursues us. And Paul writes to the church in Philippi and says, by no means do you need to think that you have to do something to impress God. Consider anything in this life scubulon except the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's all that matters. And it's life changing. And so I want to end with this story. There was a Harvard professor, Harvard, smart people. His name was Henry Nouwen, and he was a world-renowned scholar. And he came to faith in Jesus. He began to realize that anything in this life that wasn't about him and his kingdom was just scubulon. And so he, he gave it all up because he believed God was calling him to move to Toronto, Canada. And there he ministered to severely mentally handicapped children for the remainder of his life because he believed that's what God's calling on his life was. While he was there, he wrote a famous book that's only 90-some pages long called In the Name of Jesus. And it details the temptations that Jesus experienced in Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4 in the New Testament, Jesus is tempted to find his identity in his power, turn these rocks into bread, to find it with his popularity and with his prestige, that essentially, that I'll give you the kingdom. You can have all the power in the world. If you just renounce your heavenly father, he wouldn't do it. He says, throw yourself off the temple and the angels will come and save you. And all the hundreds of people in the temple courtyard will be so impressed. You will have all the prestige and popularity you would want. And yet Jesus was willing and able to resist each of those temptations that draw so many of us back in to see ourselves defined by those very things, our power, our popularity, our prestige. I don't know which one it is for you, but I know why Jesus does what he does and is able to resist the temptation. You see in Luke chapter 3, just a chapter earlier, Jesus is, before he goes to the wilderness, he has this moment where he is baptized. John the Baptist sees him come, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. And as he comes to be baptized, the, the heavens open up, the passage says, and a dove descends. The Spirit of God is there. And we get a picture of the Trinity, of who God is. And his heavenly Father says to Jesus, This is my Son, with whom I am well pleased. Most of us never experience God in our lives because we never find him as our only and primary identity. We find our identity in all of these other things that we accomplish and do rather than knowing God alone. He says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. All he needs to know is that he is a son of the living God. The book of Romans tells us if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can now call him Abba, Father, literally Daddy that your identity is no longer found in all the things that you accomplish and the things that impress people. It's found only in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's powerful. 
You can face death. You can face loss. Your finances can be in disarray. Your marriage can be a mess. You can be a terrible dater. And you can know that in the end, if you continue to just say, I am a son or daughter of the living God, he is going to walk you through every step. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard. The question is about identity. And so my question to you is, do you pursue scubulon, the things to impress people, or do you pursue Christ in his resurrection? And I want to give you the opportunity to pursue the latter. Will you pray with me? God, there are some of us in the room right now that we believe in you. We've even surrendered our life to you. But we've never really found our primary identity in you. We have never been baptized to declare we have died with you and we have risen Indeed. And maybe there is somebody in this room right now that you have been stirring to no longer find your identity in the things of this world, but to consider it scubulon and find your identity only in being a son or a daughter of the living God. If that is you here this morning and you want to surrender everything to him, you want to be baptized, I want you to pray this with me. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no fear in knowing Jesus. There is freedom. And so I want you to pray this with me. If you desire to follow him in the act of baptism, pray this. God, I surrender everything in my life to your lordship. And I find my identity fully and only in you. May you help me to resist the temptation to find my identity in other places. I give you everything. My background, my history, the wrongdoing, the mistakes, God, I give you my career. I give you my family. I give you my sexuality. I give you my finance. God, I give you everything. Teach me. If that is you here this morning, we surrender it all to you, Lord Jesus. Use us. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's family together said, amen.